Nerds International proudly presents... What you are currently listening to is bonus content, and it will not affect the scheduling of your regular Tabletop Twats episodes. So, please sit back and enjoy... Bonus delicious bonus content. Bonus... Ooh, bonus content. Bonus was like bonus content in that, mate. Hello there and welcome one and all. It's me, James Clark, and what you're currently listening to is bonus content. A letter was sent in to us by Louis Pineda, entitled Strange Samford. Now, before I get into reading this, why don't you make yourself comfortable? Get a cup of tea, maybe a biscuit, piece of cake, crumpet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Strange Samford. Some background on this story, the how and why of this session. I had a patient to see in South Florida on Sunday, and she just happened to be about 10 minutes away from a married couple that was part of a gaming group I ran years ago, so I swung by to say hi. We had pizza and chit-chatted. They asked me if I still ran a game, I did. I asked if they had done any gaming, and they didn't since they had their hands busy with their two young children. After the second slice of pizza, they put their kids to nap and asked me if I would run a quick one-shot using Savage Worlds since it's so fast. I happened to have my backpack full of my gaming supplies, because the week before a game, I tried to have everything with me in case any ideas bubble up. I decided to base the one-shot in the town of Samford, Florida. Back when we gamed together, they lived in Samford. It's the town where Travid Martin was gunned down and the chief of police's son goes around beating up homeless people. It's a horrible little town, full of corrupt cops, KKK members, and quite possibly the sleaziest of people outside of a major city. It's the social equivalent of a cold sore. I unfortunately live near it and have to commute through it occasionally. There's a good coffee house there and Lake Monroe, a massive lake full of alligators, but that's about as good as it gets. I always noticed that the Walmart there had an inordinate amount of missing children posters. I'm talking about dozens in comparison to any other Walmart in that area that might have a handful of posters up. It was also odd that none of the missing children were ever on the news like in other areas. I decided a while back I'd use that as the basis for a borderline supernatural world setting. The Hook a Catholic-run foster home slash orphanage located right next to Lake Monroe requested assistance from the local bishop in investigating the disappearance of three teenage foster children that had disappeared at Walmart when they were tasked to pick up groceries. The bishop relented and assigned a private investigator that was on retainer and sent a newly promoted deacon. The deacon proved to be a political hindrance due to being able to perform miracles whilst more devout priests couldn't. If he could get the deacon away from the parishioners for a bit, he may regain some influence. The characters Kona Private investigator pre-generated from the book. Hindrances were doubting Thomas, curious and stubborn. Only possessions of note were her old Honda Accord and her Glock. She wore jeans, boots and a black tank top with a jacket over it to hide her shoulder-holded pistol. Deacon Gary McGuinness ordered by the area bishop to accompany the private investigator. He has the ability to heal people by touch and prayer and somehow call upon God to protect himself and people from attacks. He had healing and deflect spells and had a vow to help those living in poverty. He dressed in basic street clothes of early autumn, 
jeans, t-shirt and a light jacket. Maria Gomez, Megan Kelly and Kia Jones were the missing teens. The first two abandoned when they were younger and Kia Jones turned over to foster care after her parents murder suicide. All three have been in and out of foster homes. Not for behavioural issues or anything concerning, but just not a good fit. They are the oldest of the foster care wards, 15, 16 and 17 respectfully, so have taken to assisting the nuns, running errands and caring for the younger children. They were even trusted to pick up groceries at the local Walmart once a month. That's where the problem is. The last time they went to get groceries, they never returned. The van was found abandoned in the parking lot. Local police were involved, but they didn't put much manpower into missing cases unless it was for more affluent families. A week had gone by before Kona and Gary were even brought into the mix, so many believe the case had gone cold. Mother Mary wasn't convinced it was a closed case, and with enough pressure, the bishop relented. The first stop was to Walmart. Gary tried to talk to cashiers and other workers asking if they had seen the girls in the pictures he had, but none of them worked more than 30 hours a week and are mostly apathetic about their jobs, so they had no recollection. The employee in the hardware department attempted to sell Gary some gutterweed, but he declined. Kona went to the lost prevention office and used persuasion to get a copy of the security footage for the day of the disappearance on a thumb drive from the security guard on duty. Returning back to their temporary quarters, Gary went through his ritual prayers for the day while Kona looked through the little evidence provided to her and finally getting something. The security camera footage seemed to have missing footage, only about two minutes, but spread out to four 30 second intervals. A man in a Make America Great hat approached the girls when they were just walking in, and then again after they had gotten their groceries. The security footage showed him going into the restroom but never making it out. There was also footage missing immediately after the girls left the building when a van pulled up next to them and again when the same white van turned behind the adjacent building. This kept the face of the man from being seen as well as the van license plates from being identified. Kona and Gary went back into the Walmart to check for anything in the bathroom that might give them a clue. The bathroom at Walmart looked like a nightmare of bodily fluids and concentrated misery, so pretty typical. Gary searched the bathroom and with a lucky roll he was able to see that the hat was hanging inside of a stool on the coat hook. He reached over, grabbed it and then ran out. Kona used her contact at the FDLE, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and spoke to them about being able to add the hat to the evidence in the case and to be checked for DNA. She was put into contact with Sergeant Michelle Lowe, a fairly attractive police officer. It would take at least three days for basic DNA results, but up to three weeks for a full spectrum to be processed. Kona and Gary decided they would have to wait for more info, so headed back to the quarters to get some rest. When morning came, Kona was watching the news and saw a story about a stand-your-ground shooting that happened at a sleazy little dive bar called The Wet Spot in downtown Sanford. They showed a picture of the shooting victim, John Cooper. He was a middle-aged white man with a greying goatee wearing an American flag t-shirt and a Make America Great Again hat. The picture was found on his Facebook page. Not uncommon at all, but an eyewitness to the shooting stated that a fight broke out at the bar after some racial slurs were thrown. 
A brawl then spilled out into the streets, which then resulted in Mr. Cooper's shooting as a defensive action by Jesus Delgado. Police confiscated the weapon and Mr. Delgado was given paid leave from his job as loss prevention officer at the local Walmart. He was the same officer that gave the thumb drive to Kona. They knew something was up and had to be connected. Getting dressed, they went back to the local police station to see if they could get the address of Mr. Delgado. Michelle was hesitant to give up the information, but did it in exchange for Gary to take her out on a date that night. Gary reluctantly agreed. He hadn't taken a vow of celibacy, but he was trying to be as faithful as possible. The day was uneventful as they staked outside the home of Mr. Delgado. He lived in what was once a cheaply built hotel converted to low-rent efficiencies within walking distance from the Walmart. By the time the sun was setting, Gary knew he was to meet up with Michelle at a dive bar called His and Hers for karaoke and drinks. He was concerned that he wouldn't know how to act and he was pretty much broke. I had him do some minor role playing as a nervous virgin type of guy. It was pretty funny. Back to Kona. She was staked outside of the apartment building when she saw Delgado walk across the parking lot with a plastic grocery bag from the bodega, probably dinner, and then enter the lobby area. She called Gary to let him know she was about to go in and asked Delgado some questions and to see if he was having a good time. She walked into the lobby behind another person entering and took the elevator to the third floor and walked into his apartment door and knocked, but no response. She knocked a second time, this time much harder, and the door creaked open. She pulled her sidearm out and pushed the door open, hearing what sounded like muffled struggling. The styrofoam clamshell and food hit the ground. Rushing into the dimly lit efficiency apartment, she saw a shadowy figure straddling Delgado on his bed and strangling him. I think you guys call it throttling. She double tapped the shadowy figure in the back doing 23 points of damage because of the drop. Blood, viscera and pieces of bone splattered on the wall. The figure stumbled up and tried to run for the window and again Kona double tapped it, doing less damage this time. It crashed through the window. Kona checked Delgado's vitals to make sure he was still alive. He was, but heavily bruised. She then called for an ambulance, followed by police, before checking out the window and seeing that where the body should be was only stained with black fluid that seemed to evaporate before her eyes. Kona called Gary and asked him to get to the apartment building. Gary was only a couple of blocks away, so he excused himself from his date and made his way to the apartment in time to see the paramedics loading Delgado into the back of the ambulance. Kona was being interviewed by Lieutenant Smith about what had happened and he seemed sceptical about the dark figure. After having her fill out a statement, he asked her to follow him to the station so they could see about identifying one of the black men that fit the description they rounded up within a five block radius of the area. She stated it wasn't a black man, it was a dark figure that had black blood, but they didn't listen to her. They get into the car and follow Lieutenant Smith on the main road through Samford, but just as they were getting to an intersection, as the light turned yellow, Lieutenant Smith ran the light leaving them behind. Gary made a notice check and saw that they were about to get T-boned by what looked like an unmarked patrol car. Their vehicle was pushed up over the curb almost going into a corner liquor smoke and vape shop. A plainclothes cop gets out of the driver's side with a badge in his left hand and a pistol in his right screaming DROP THE WEAPON! 
Gary, sensing danger, cast a deflect spell on himself and Koenig and got a raise. The cops fired into the car, but the combined effect of having partial cover and deflect kept Kona from being filled with lead. Kona then made a strength check to push herself and Gary out of the passenger side door to get out of the line of fire. Gary drew the joker and crouched down by the hood of the car. As soon as the cop rounded it, he stood up and wild attacked with the drop using his bible and knocked the cop out cold. Kona got up and went to put cuffs on the unconscious man when Gary again made his notice check and saw that Lieutenant Smith pulled a U-turn and started to barrel towards them. Gary got a raise on his strength check and pushed himself and Kona out the way. Lieutenant Smith ended up with the front end of his car in the corner store, but before he was able to get out, Kona stood up and double tapped him again, getting a raise on her attack and exploding several times on her damage dice, killing him. They grabbed the unconscious plainclothes cop and threw him into the back of Lieutenant Smith's car, dumped Lieutenant Smith's body onto the pavement, got in and drove off to a safe house provided by the church. During the drive, Kona questioned Gary about why he touched her in the car instead of diving for cover first. He explained it away as he was saying a prayer. She sensed something was off about him from the start but couldn't place it. She knew that the cop had her in his sights, there's no way he should have missed. Through interrogation here, they're able to get out of the police officer that up until recently, most of the missing people came from the town farther inland called Castleberry. But ever since that city decided to demolish the abandoned buildings and expand the roads, which inadvertently poisoned the local lakes, the number of missing people has plummeted. He only knows that ever since people started going missing, the economy has gotten better. The mayor and the police chief seem to think it's better to turn a blind eye than to spend resources finding the poor kids. Using investigation, Kona and Gary are able to find out that the shift in location of missing children seemed to coincide with the destruction of an old abandoned warehouse that was right next to a central lake and state-funded park, including a boardwalk. The new mayor, the first in 23 years, is the one that encouraged modernization of the small town to get rid of the old abandoned buildings. The native Floridians called him the carpetbagger, but so many people had moved to the area from up north that he won by a landslide. When they made their way back to the quarters, they had to sneak past a patrolman that was watching the building. When they made it in there, there was a box waiting for Gary by his door. Upon opening it, what he saw inside was a bloody shot he remembers from the video that belonged to Maria with the note that read, Stop digging or you'll dig your own graves. The lives you are putting at risk won't be missed. Kona and Gary immediately told the head nun to round up the children and keep them safe in a central area and they would be back. They exited and snuck past a patrolman, or so they thought, and using combined efforts of Streetwise they learned of an abandoned warehouse in a mostly unused area that really only had other abandoned buildings and a halfway house for recovering addicts. Word on the street was that the warehouse was sick and any homeless that stayed there disappeared or got sick enough to be admitted into the hospital and animals generally stayed away from it. They made their way to the building the next morning at first light. It was dilapidated but the boards covering up the windows were new and the door that should have been rusted shut looked like it had seen use recently. Kona and Gary broke the lock on the chain holding the door shut and made their way in. The building was in disrepair, but was surprisingly clean. They could smell the water from Lake Monroe, but there was a slight saltiness to the air. 
They could hear an echo coming from the large grate in the centre of the warehouse and made their way to it. They made an extended strength check to open the grate completely and discovered a set of rough steps leading down but only maybe about 10 feet down. The walls looked hastily constructed and there was water about ankle deep once they made it to the bottom. A hallway barely wide enough for them to walk down shoulder to shoulder led towards the direction of Lake Monroe. Their way was lit by bioluminescent moss. When they made it, farther down the hallway opened up to a large circular chamber and they could make out an altar in the centre with what looked like a body on top and at the four cardinal directions there were torches with a green light. By now, the water was shin deep. Together they moved forward and saw that on the altar was Kia Jones. Her body looked to have been through torture and she looked sedated. Gary cast his healing spell on Kia and she came too, but she was terrified. She began to scream and they were all assaulted by the echoes. Kona spotted something in the back of the chamber watching, but staying in the darker shadows. She couldn't quite make it out, but she told the others they need to leave. She instructed Gary to help Kia and move towards the tunnel as she drew a pistol and trained it towards the moving darkness. Before Gary could act, the darkness lunged forwards and once it came into the light, the visage caused everyone to make a fear check. Gary succeeded with a raise. Kia failed and fell into the floor nearly in a catatonic state and Kona was shaken. The creature moved forward and fell on top of Kia. It was a mass of claws, tentacles and teeth. Gary tried to cast Deflect but failed. The creature had half a dozen eye stalks and took in its surroundings, but it seemed to be focused on feeding. Kona recovered and rather than run, she double tapped the creature, but was unable to damage it. Not that the attention was all on Kona. She was attacked and took seven levels of damage, it just tore into her. Her soak roll absorbed only two levels of damage. Gary, realising this was a losing battle, believed that if they could just make it to daylight, the creature wouldn't chase, so he picked up Kona and ran for the tunnel. The chase lasted five rounds and twice the creature was close enough to strike, but missed. Gary made it to the stairs, and as soon as he started climbing, he looked up and saw the chief of police, the mayor and the Michelle holding the grate before dropping it. Michelle mouthed the words, I'm sorry, and then turned away as the creature bore down on Gary. He dropped Kona to the ground, turned around with his Bible and swung, but missed. When the creature attacked, he died instantly. Epilogue the head nun reports Kona and Gary as missing, but the police say there are no clues as to what may have happened. Their missing posters get added to the dozens already at Walmart. The Elgado dies of sepsis, and Lieutenant Smith's death gets coverage as a road rage incident. And there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Strange Samford by Louis Pineda. Thank you very much for sending that in, Louis. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Now, for anyone out there who listened and liked this and would like their story perhaps read out by one of us, why don't you send it over to us at tabletoptwats at gmail.com. And that's it from me. Till next time, peace!